there are some speeches that have gone down as the greatest ones ever in history. Not necessarily because they're eloquent, although some of them are very eloquent, but because the speaker said something that was just the right thing at the right time and it led to change, to action. It captured people's hearts. It captured what they were thinking, the spirit of the moment and led to to big change. And, and often the turns of phrases that you use go down in the collective memory of that generation and ones to come and it become part of the, the social ethos of things. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream and a very famous speech that turned American politics and history. JFK's Apollo speech, we choose to go to the moon and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Winston Churchill, at one of the darkest moments of English history, at the height of World War II, when everything looked uh, looked terrible and a disaster, he said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. It's even quoted in Galaxy Quest, a great movie. But the historic speeches, ones which galvanise the, the hearts of the hearers for action and, and call for change and determination and, and charted the way forward. And as we turn to the scriptures today, we, we, we come to what is the greatest speech that's ever been given. Uh, not just my opinion, but it's a sermon in fact, uh, which one which... The turns of phrase really have entered into uh, the collective memory and the social ethos. Things like uh, salt of the earth, turn the other cheek, uh, don't judge or you'll be judged, uh, judge a tree by its fruit and things like that. Uh, it, it's the speech which, which gave us the Lord's Prayer, one which even the non-Christian world around us, many people can quote it, they know it, they, they heard it. Uh, and it's said by our parliaments even to this day. It's that speech, a speech which has profoundly influenced not just people in the generation in which it was given and, and not just for the next 50 years or so like some of these other great speeches that I mentioned, but one which has been challenging and transforming lives even today, still 2,000 years after it was given, after it was spoken. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and it's from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7 in Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be looking at it for uh, nine weeks or so, so that we might hear our Master uh, as he speaks and, and heed his call to action. Because that's what this speech is, like all the other great speeches, it's a call to action. It's a call to galvanise us, to change us, to prepare us. It's something to put steel in our backbones. But before we get into the first part of that we'll be looking at today, we've got to understand the context because the Sermon on the Mount didn't get printed as a little booklet that Jesus distributed from a little bookstall on the corner. It's part of Matthew's Gospel. And we need to know how it fits because as my mentors drilled into me over and over and over again, you ready? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You get it? Uh, a text without a proof text, uh, sorry, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That is, if you don't look at the context and don't understand how it fits within the book, you'll end up misunderstanding it or at worst, uh, 
twisting it or uh, just as worse being manipulated when someone else twists it and you go okay they they sound like experts it's it's said that you can make the bible say anything you want it to say and that's true to a point but not if you listen to the context and read it in its context the Bible doesn't say whatever we want it to say. In fact, it often says things that we don't want it to say. And the Sermon on the Mount may well say a few of those things as well. And so we want to hear God's voice and understand what he's saying to us. And to do that, we've got to put it in context. Beware the preacher or the Christian writer who only ever goes from random half quotes and half sentences from the Bible And always go and make sure that whatever a preacher says, even if it's me or Dave or Adam, uh, see it as right for yourself. Go and look at it in context and make sure that, that it's right because this is the word of God here, not what we are saying. We're reflecting it, hopefully, uh, and trying to make sense of it. But the Bible is right, you know, and the preacher is only right when they really do agree. But you've got to look in the context. So what's the context for the Sermon on the Mount, this greatest speech that was ever given well it's in verse one when he saw the crowds and he is jesus when jesus saw the crowds he went up on the mountain and after he sat down his disciples came to him then he began to teach them saying and he goes on uh, who are the crowds and and why does seeing the crowds mean that he climbs up a mountain and and begins to teach his disciples and 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 who are they, disciples? Is it everyone who's there, all the crowds, or is it just some particular people? And, and why on earth would that matter anyway? Well, last week uh, we saw in chapter 4, David's great talk, Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and, and he sees two fishermen in verses 18 to 20 and then he sees two more fishermen in verses 21 to 22 and he says to them, come and follow me. But notice why he says it. Why is he asking them to come follow him? What is he asking them to do? He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. That's what he's calling them to be and what he's going to train them to be. He's not just inviting these people to come on a nice holiday with him. Uh, he's, he's asking them to do a job and join with him in doing the job. He's not asking them to be members of a club. No, he's asking them to become partners in the work he himself is doing. Come and join me in fishing and not fishing for fish anymore, but fishing for people. Effectively, what he's calling on them to do is do an apprenticeship with him, which is what a disciple is. It's a student, not like the kids in the classroom up at the local school who are bored and they're daydreaming and they have to be there unless they've got a sniffle and they're sent home. But, but, but an apprentice like in a trade, that kind of student, uh, an apprentice who, who watches their teacher and, and learns and, and participates in the work that the master has a go at it. And this new trade that he is calling to is not fishing for fish, which they're used to, but fishing for men or fishing for people. And, and he seems pretty successful himself in doing that because everywhere he goes, huge crowds are following him, massive crowds. And not just locals from the local town who are there because they're a bit bored and it's a bit of a distraction after all, what else do you do in country Galilee? But look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and, and beyond the Jordan. Now, you might be tempted to skip over that last bit whenever there's kind of lists of names or lists of places, you know, who cares. But, but what's being described is really important. It's, it, it's describing the fact that people are traveling for hundreds of kilometers across international borders, uh, from right around the Middle East to be there to see this man. Syria, up north and east of, uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, you know, where the Gentiles lived, they were coming. The Decapolis, the region across the Sea of Galilee on the east, a region of ten city-states. Jerusalem and Judea, who Galilee had become separated, as a different country by this point, governed and under different jurisdiction. It's way down, hundreds of kilometres to the south. And it's not like today when you can get in a car and you know drive up to Queensland and it might take you eight hours or so non-stop. Uh, or, you know, 10 to 12 hours if it's with my kids in the car. No, they, they went drunk. They had to walk it. They're walking hundreds of kilometers or perhaps if they're wealthy enough, riding on a donkey or a camel. And it's an astonishing feat. That is, people are traveling for at least a week on foot, right? How long would it take to walk up to Queensland from Sydney? It would take days. Take more than a week. And, and they weren't travelling on foot just by themselves. No, they were bringing with them their sick and their crippled family members and their friends because they've heard that Jesus might be able to heal them. And, and they've got to go all the way back afterwards. You know, who, who would spend their whole annual leave travelling to go and see someone give a speech or hear what they've got to say? Because that's effectively what they're doing. Because this is two, three, four weeks out of their schedule, out of their lives to do this. I very much doubt that if I was preaching in Tweed Heads, uh, you'd want to walk there and back again just for the privilege of hearing me do that. In fact, uh, I doubt you'd go that far even by Cardi. <laughs> um, who would you go to hear someone give a talk in Tweed Heads if you had to walk there? Almost no one. So I bet the disciples thought they were on a winner when they, uh, and that fishing with Jesus would be really easy because look at this man, he can draw a crowd. He wants us to fish for men. He obviously knows how to do it. Jesus was the biggest news that had ever hit Galilee, the biggest draw card they'd ever seen. And, and they were part of the inner circle. They'd made it with Jesus. And now, He's going to give them personal discipleship training. He's going to teach them how to fish for men. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to learn to be a fisher of men, here's the lesson. This is where you've got to go. That's what Jesus is giving them and that's what we need to learn. But you look at it and it's nothing like what you'd expect. In fact, it's dramatically, radically different. And and while it's directed to the inner circle of disciples, that's who Jesus is, uh, climbed this mountain, they've come up with him to teach. The whole crowd, in fact, followed him up the mountain. 
And so by the end of chapter 7, you can see that the whole international crowd with their sick and their lame are there hanging on every word and they are astonished by what he said. That's what the last sentence in chapter 7 says. It's, and it, it's not about tips and tricks about how to, how to, you know, convince people of your, by your rhetoric or anything like that. Jesus begins with what our Bibles have called and have given it the title here uh, in the CSB. It's also in the other translations as well, so it's not just them. The Beatitudes. These are called the Beatitudes, which is a really strange word because you've probably got no idea what the heck that word means. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, when he was a young man, he uh, his dad was a Christian, so he went to youth group and they were talking about the Beatitudes and he went, is that... Maybe that's the attitude to be at, and he just assumed that that was the case until he went to more college and they told him what it meant. But uh, uh, Remember that the headings, though, are not part of the Bible. Uh, the editors are whacking the headings so it's an easy way to find something, but, but they're not actually part of God's Word. They're not part of what's written. And while they sometimes help us, they can be a real pain in the neck, especially when they're wrong, which they sometimes are, uh, because they've misunderstood what the, the section's about. Or, or when they use weird words like beatitudes here. Yeah, the word beatitude, it just means blessing. Blessing. Here are the blessings of being one of Jesus' disciples. These are the blessings that come to us. This is who God's blessings are for. But, but even the word blessing itself is a pretty strange word. You don't use that in normal language except when someone sneezes, which you know, now particularly everyone's afraid of now you don't say God bless you, you just run for your life because they might have COVID. But, uh, but you, you know, you, that's the only time we would use blessing. God bless you. Um, but, but blessing is about God's favour. Yeah, and so when he says blessed are those who, well, here are the lucky ones. Here are the favoured ones. Here are the fortunate ones. These are, these are the ones who have God's favour. That, that's how Jesus starts his speech. You want to know who to envy uh, and who to model yourself on? This is the one. Here's the good life, Jesus is saying, the one that's rewarded and favoured by God. But you look at the list and you go, really, Jesus? Uh, it's not quite what you'd expect because who are the blessed ones? According to Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, or the the humble, as the CSB puts it. it. It's it's not the ones you would have thought of, is it? You know, it's not who anyone else would say are the blessed ones. Surely, the blessed ones you think about that. Who who would you call blessed? It's the rich. It's the powerful. It's the the ones who've got happy families and they've got everything they need and everything going on. They're they're living life to the full. Surely, they're the blessed ones. But in the kingdom of God. These are the blessed ones, those who are mourning, those who are poor in spirit, the meek, the humble, and so on. And, and the good news for us is that it's the little people. It's not the rich and powerful and famous. It's not those who've got everything together. It's the little people who the kingdom of God is for and who the kingdom of heaven will be given to. But here's the thing. If we've got our Bible reading glasses on, we... we we discover that what Jesus is saying here is actually nothing new. All of the blessings that he quotes and says are, are from the Old Testament. right? Jesus isn't making this stuff up. It's not new to him. 
In fact, some of them are actual quotes from the Old Testament. They're not original to Jesus at all. For instance, the, the, the humble shall inherit the earth or the meek shall inherit the earth. That's a direct quote from Psalm 37 and verse 11. And in fact, the other blessings are all references to, to that same psalm, pretty much. Psalm 37, go and have a look right through the whole thing and you'll see all of these kind of uh, concepts there and how they are the ones who God favours. Uh, and you see it also again in, in the prophets, particularly I reckon it's almost a, a um, explanation of Isaiah chapter 40 to 66. Uh, it's and the last two chapters of Isaiah, it captures all of these ideas. And he, he's apart from Isaiah 61. See if you can hear the connections. I'm going to read the first few verses of Isaiah 61. See if you can hear the Sermon on the Mount ideas in it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. What was Isaiah writing that for? What was he looking forward to? It's a prophecy about the future. But he'd foreseen the destruction and judgment that was coming on Israel because of their disobedience to God and their idolatry. They turned to other things and filled their hearts and lives and worshipped other stuff other than God. And they had been destroyed as just as he's seen, but he foresaw that and that there would be just a handful of survivors and they would be slaves to other nations, survivors who'd mourn. They'd mourn over the destruction of Jerusalem. They'd mourn over the destruction of the temple of Solomon and who'd mourn then over their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of their nation, which had brought about God's judgment. People who would humble themselves before God and listen to him again. And Jesus turns up and says, blessed are the mourners for they shall be comforted. It's not a verse for funerals or uh, when you've lost a loved one, that's not what it's about. It's about the mourning for the state of Israel and, and for the nation that's so rebelled against God that it's been cast aside from being his people. Blessed are those ones who are mourn because they will be comforted because the Spirit of God is upon me to do this and to bring that about. And blessed are the poor in spirit, those who've humbled themselves before God and acknowledged their need for mercy and forgiveness. Blessed are they who mourn over the sinfulness of their world and over their own sinfulness. Blessed are the meek who don't proudly defy God and just do what they want without reference to him. Blessed are the pure in heart who, who aren't indulging their own sin and looking to please themselves. And if you've got time this week, it'd be really worth chasing up all uh, all the different references and see if you can find all the number of times that the Old Testament speaks about every one of these groups of people and, and the blessings, the favour of God that's uh, promised to them, where they come from in the Old Testament. I might put up a list. Uh, you can press pause on the video and uh, jot it down just as, to get you started if you just want to see some of the, some of the places. But these are the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. 
no longer following the ways of this world and chasing after kind of what it's chasing after, where riches and power are what people aspire to, where compromise governs the way to success. That's not the way of the kingdom of heaven. This is the way. This is the way to blessing. Now, notice how the promise in verse 3 and the promise in verse 10, the ones that sort of start and end the list, are exactly the same promise to two different kind of people. But both of them are promised for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That is, it's top and tail by the same promise. That is, it's not different blessings for different people who might meet one of those criteria, but not the other ones. You know, and so there's a blessing if you're just meek, uh, even if you don't care about righteousness and peace. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not that some people have one blessing and others have a different blessing. No, they're all the blessings for everybody who's in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's, that's what the blessing is. But notice also how he changes in verse 11. In verses 3 to 10, it's all been blessed are those who, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are poor in spirit but in verse 11 Jesus changes to blessed are blessed are you that's a huge change very significant change because up until now Jesus has said nothing new nothing that any faithful Israelite should have known from the prophets and from the Psalms but here is something new something that's connected with him now that he's here a blessing that is specifically theirs as his disciple and specifically ours too if we are his followers, if we are his students, if we are going to fish for men with him. So here's the first big lesson in discipleship that Jesus has got for them and he's got for us. Want to hear it? If you're going to be his follower, if you're going to come and join him in his work of fishing for men, well, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's the big first lesson from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' disciples sharing all the blessings of the kingdom, but in particular, they have this blessing of suffering, the blessing of persecution, the blessing of being hated by others. And, and in that blessing, we're in great company, right? In company with people like Moses, who was hated and despised by all the whinges that he was leading through the desert for 40 years. They they, they complained about him every turn. They staged rebellions against him. Uh, or, or Elijah, who stood alone against the prophets of Baal and against the evil king Ahaz and uh, his wife. Or, or Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, that you know his enemies put him down a well so he could rot to death. Just think of the situation. He, he's the ones that Jesus has chosen and personally called. They're surrounded by the great crowds. They're sitting at the feet of the most popular preacher and healer of their time and the blessing that he's bringing them and promising them is not that of popularity but of unpopularity. It's not fame and fortune but it's pain and persecution. It's a strange way to recruit people to the cause, don't you reckon? 
There's nothing about the superannuation package. There's not, here's the hidden perks in the job. It's not about the fringe benefits that you could, you know, get out of your tax. It's, you want to come and fish with me, says Jesus. Well, welcome to persecution. It's part of the job. But don't fear it. Don't shun it. It's expected. And actually, it's the way of blessing in the kingdom of heaven. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, they're the heroes. They're the ones who did bring lasting change to the hearts of God's people. They are the ones who stood up when everyone else said go a different way and you're joining in their company. Yes, you'll suffer as they suffered because of me, because you love me and you love my word, but it's a great thing. Blessed are you when you suffer like they did because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Which brings us to the famous little images that, that Jesus brings up in the last bit of the introduction, which we're going to look at today. Uh, images of being disciples. Uh, in verse 16, he says this, and very famous. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp or puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others uh, and that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Very famous passage, but one that's been used by, by preachers all over the world right through history to connect uh, social welfare work with gospel work, to say they're the two arms of mission, that they go hand in hand. Yet you're the salt. Salt is like taste and preservative, and so that's preserving people uh, and society from disintegration and from moral decay. And, and you're like light. Light uh, light is like the knowledge of the, of the gospel, and you're the ones who are going to bring the light of God's saving work to uh, the, to mankind. And so we're the salt of the earth as we do charitable works and, and campaign for social justice and, and we're light as we spread the gospel. The only trouble is that's completely wrong. It's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, why is it wrong? Well, it's wrong, first of all, because salt has way more uses than just being for preservative and taste. That may be the reasons we use salt in our own homes today, uh, particularly if you're making beef jerky uh, at home like I do. You know, it's a preservative, but most of it's just whack it on our fish and chips because we like the taste. And and that's great, but it's used in all kinds of other ways even today that we're just not aware of. And and in the ancient world, there are all kinds of uses of salt. So which one was Jesus talking about? They, they paid their taxes in salt sometimes. Uh, they spoke of sharing salt, which was... Their way of saying breaking bread together, right? We share salt. We, we're, we're sitting down to a meal and enjoying each other's company and fellowship. Uh, if you ate salt from the king's table, it meant you were favoured in society. Uh, salt was used in very small quantities as a fertiliser in manure heaps, but only in little bits because you use too much and it ruins the land. And so uh, people, uh, uh, armies would come in and salt fields right, to destroy their enemy's lands and mean that they would starve them out because it would no longer be productive. If you wanted to harm your enemies, you'd salt the lands. They can't grow crops. It's a very nasty military tactic. Uh, one that's spoken about in the Bible even. Uh, all these are in the Bible. And, and so people then came to use salt as a curse in their personal relationships. You pick up a bit of salt and throw it at someone as a way of cursing them. 
Uh, and add to that some really odd Old Testament passages where salt turns up. Yeah, Elijah, uh, against what we would do, uh, threw salt into some water to purify it. Right? Now, he could do that because, uh, you know, he was, um, God was going to work through that. But it's not a normal use of salt, but it's certainly there in the Old Testament. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Uh, Lot's wife. You know, as they escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction, she turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt. So so which one of those did Jesus mean when he said, you're the salt of the earth? Uh, is he saying, you're fertilizer? Is he saying, you're a curse to everyone? Is he saying, you're the taxes of the world? Just jumping to what I do with salt is not how you read the Bible. You've got to think, what what does it mean in its context? But then you look at it again and you discover when you read the, the bit carefully, you don't actually need to know the ways that salt's used to understand what Jesus is saying because he's not talking about the use that you put salt to. He's talking about its saltiness. You know, it, the salt at that time was mined from the salt pans and it came with gypsum and so uh, you didn't know quite whether you were getting the, the proper salt experience or if that leached out, you were just getting gypsum, which is, you know, fine white powder, looks a lot like salt. Uh, and so it could lose its saltiness. But, and the other problem is he doesn't just give two images, he gives three. It's salt that hasn't lost its saltiness. It's light on a lampstand, you don't put it under a bowl, but there's a third image in the middle, which is a city on a hill, which cannot be hidden. So there's three things going on. But all of them are images of exactly the same thing. What are they pictures of? They're pictures of unmistakable, obvious, observable difference. All of them stand out from what's around. That's what they're all pictures of. Salt's only good if it's still salty. It hasn't been leached out. The light is different to the darkness. And if you're to hide it, it's as if it's not light at all. It's useless. The city on a hill cannot, cannot hide away it's it's there to be seen you try and cover up the thing uh, that makes it stand out and it becomes completely useless if the salt's not cycling well whatever use you're going to put it to chuck it out you let people trample over it chuck it away because it's it's no good if the light's hidden under a bolt completely useless no one can see in the house a city on a hill well try as you might to make it hidden i don't know how you'd have a blanket big enough to do that it always stands out as being different to the countryside around it. And so salt, light and cities, they're all obviously, unmistakably different. And that's what Jesus is talking about. His disciples, to be disciples, to function as disciples, to fish for men, have to be completely different. Completely different. Completely different to other people different even to their own upbringing and background, different to the the culture around and different to what the neighbours are doing, different even to uh, how they were themselves once upon a time before meeting Jesus. Unmistakably different, cannot be hidden kind of different, observably, obviously different. If you want to be part of the crowd... Don't be a disciple of Jesus. If you want to be part of the crowd, don't be a disciple of Jesus because a disciple can't be and mustn't be part of the crowd. 
Well, how should they be different? It, yeah, it's, it's, is it in the brand of clothes that they wear or the kind of sporting code that they follow? Is it their eating habits or, no, it's none of this. It's not their education or level. The, the difference that he's talking about is in verse 16. Have a look. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The difference, the stark difference, the unmistakable difference is their goodness, their good works, how they are. They're different, they're changed, they're, they're new people. And even then, it, it's different to the way that the world views goodness because generally when people see your good deeds, who do they praise? You, <laughs> right? They, you help a little old lady who uh, across the road, one that wanted to cross the road, of course, not one that didn't want to, one that wants to be helped. And, and people say, and say, wow, isn't, isn't he a nice fellow? Isn't, isn't she lovely? They don't say, isn't God, their God, wonderful? But the good works that Jesus is talking about are the kinds of good works that, that when people see it, they'll say, that person's, they, God must have touched their life to be like that. God's at work in that one. You know, he used to be this drunken, wife-bashing gambler, but he's cleaned up his act and he's looking after kids and he's gone and got a job now and said, what's happening with him? Well, he's got religion. You know, God, God's changed him. Must have been God because we know the rotter that he was, right? If you do those things, so, you know, you're a mongrel, right? Awful. We know what he was like, but now he's a different man. God's done something in his life. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Different in, different in what we value. Different in, in how we go about loving people. Different in our married life. Different in, in what we're pursuing in life and what's important to us. Different in our attitude to money and, and different in our, the way that we worry. Uh, all the things he's going to go on and talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the kind of next three chapters. He's bringing different parts of life and how how his disciples are to be different. Different completely to the rest of the world, which is heading, as he says in the last chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, they're heading to on the broad road that leads to destruction. In fact, so different that though they might praise your Father in heaven and say, well, God's done something in his life, and they may end up praising him, some of them at least, that they'll also end up hating you for it and persecute you and revile you because of him. People do not like the one that stands out from the crowd uh, as different, especially the one whose difference is their God-honouring life, their God-honouring works that they want to tell the truth on their tax return when everyone else is kind of fudging it, you know, and sneaking bonuses to the people uh, in the office and no, no, I want to record it. That's not popular because now everyone's going to get in trouble. Different in not praying briberies, in international business dealings. Uh, uh, the person who's like that's not liked by others. It's the person whose life is a rebuke to others because... They won't go with the crowd. They stand up and be counted because they've got a backbone. 
standing up for what is true and for what is right. Evil and everyone else is championing lies and falsehood and what is wrong. And, and that's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. It's very hard to be a true person of integrity in a corrupt world. Very hard when everyone else is going the other way. But remember, even a dead dog can swim with the stream. If you're going to swim against it, you've got to be alive. You've got to be alive to swim against it. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to be fishing for men, then you can't be a fish any longer yourself. You don't fish for people by swimming in the water. You fish for people by standing on a boat or on the pier. You've got to be different. You've got to be fundamentally different, unmistakably different, observably different. Salt, light, a city on a hill, a beacon shining in the darkness, like Moses, like Elijah like Jeremiah, the heroes of old who made a difference but were hated for it in their time. It's great company that we're in. And while it might seem strange, it's actually the way to blessing. And blessing not just for ourselves but for others as they receive the gospel and they come to the truth and come to Jesus. Blessed are you when you join in suffering with Jesus and join him in that suffering for the truth that sets people free blessed are you for yours is the kingdom of heaven our father these are challenging words they are countercultural. they are so different to everything we've been brought up to think and believe by our families by our schooling by our community around us by the media and yet you call us to be different to be your disciples, to join in your work of fishing for people and to stand out from the crowd. And so, Father, help us to have courage. Help us to understand that this really is the life of blessing, that you favour those who follow Jesus even when it's difficult, who mourn over their sin and the sinfulness of this world, who are humble in heart and poor in spirit and contrite, who are peacemakers who long for others to be at peace with you and who suffer when you call us to in well in a way that doesn't despise you and give up on you but looks in joy to the hope that's ours and to your strength and comfort. Thank you that you walk with us and that this is not just our work but it's your work that we're joining in with. And so, Father, please help us to be people of courage to listen to you, to hear your voice, to follow you when you call us to be different and to not be ashamed but to stand out and, and rejoice in the fact that these blessings are ours and that we are yours and that your kingdom is, is where we're going to be. We long for that day and we pray that many more might see our good deeds, not for our own praise, but that they might hear the gospel and they might turn to you and be saved, that they might praise you the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.